Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you all. We're very excited to learn with you today. There's nothing more nourishing for the soul than a little Torah learning uh, together. And so glad we can do that today on this beautiful day. Hopefully it's beautiful wherever you are. We are thrilled to be here with Rabbi Adina Lewitz, who is a rabbi, entrepreneur, teacher, and writer who is passionate about changing the, the changing landscape of Jewish life and the urgent questions around identity and belonging in today's Jewish communities. She is a member of the faculty of the Shalom Hartman Institute, teaches contemporary halakha, Jewish law in the rabbinical school at JTS and sits on the boards of Keshet and of the Heschel School in New York City. She is going to be talking today about requiring Brit Mikvah for female trans converts, um, a, a, uh, an important topic that is emerging in all denominations and all spheres of Jewish life of adaptation. We're going to have the chance to learn from uh, Rabbi Adina uh, for about 35, 40, 45 minutes, uh, and then have the chance for some questions and answers to engage on, on the specific texts and related questions. So Rabbi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuley. So nice to be a part of this uh, wonderful learning community. This really is the worldwide web of Jewish learning. I'm looking at you in beautiful, sunny Arizona. You're looking at me, you could probably tell from what I'm wearing, I just got off the ski hill here in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal, where I'm sitting. Um, it is sunny and beautiful, but um, many, many, many degrees colder. Um, but it's great to be all together. Um, friends, it's my custom whenever I have the opportunity, the privilege to teach, to open with a very short nigun, a wordless melody. It helps me as I hope it will help you to open our minds, to expand our souls, to ready ourselves, to receive and to do business uh, with Torah. So if you feel like joining me from wherever you are, please go for it. If you feel like unmuting, I don't mind the messiness, but uh, here we go. I nai na nai, 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 I nai 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 nai. Let's begin our study today of a very, uh, very important, um, very um, 
difficult, very challenging in many ways, and very urgent question of contemporary halakha, one that will um, illuminate for us the uh, dynamism within the halakhic tradition. It will illuminate for us our responsibility as the inheritors of this beautiful tradition to find our way between um, ensuring the ongoing integrity of the tradition and the ongoing integrity and dignity of all who call it home. Before we begin with me sharing what we are doing today, I wanna to say a word about what we're not doing today, at least what I'm not doing today. I am not debating or presenting a debate around the halachic status of trans Jews. In my mind, in my heart, in my soul, that is not up for discussion. I want us all to, I hope, be able to extend the principle of kavod habriot, of the honor of every human being of all creations and all creatures, and together establish an atmosphere of respect and appreciation for the wondrous diversity and beauty, including gender and sexual diversity that um, appear in manifold ways throughout the Jewish community, as well as the human family, of course. I also wanna be mindful of how vulnerable the trans population continues to be beyond this uh, setting of halachic deliberation about ritual. I'm sure many of us know how high, how dangerously high rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide are in this community, not to mention the high rate of violence against the trans community, especially trans women. So I want to be mindful of the love and the care that we bring to this conversation as well. Normalizing the presence of trans people in our Jewish communities and in our tradition could be argued as a matter of pikuach nefesh because of what I just said, the mitzvah of actually saving lives. I wanna acknowledge that there may be among us genuine um, uh, desires to learn more. We may together represent people of varying degrees of knowledge, experience, and questions about the nature of trans identity and about the appropriate language or vocabulary that we ought to use when speaking about, uh, about the trans community. I wanna ask please for gentleness, for respect from those who may be um, motivated to ask questions. I wanna ask patience and understanding from those who may be more knowledgeable and more experienced so that we can collectively learn with and from each other. I think it's fair to say that all of us are in a constant process of learning and growing. These realities are evolving quickly within our families, within our communities, and I am among those who continue to learn um, every day ways to be um, a, a deeper and, and more supportive ally to the trans community. So um, let me in, in some respects, begin by asking forgiveness. If I say anything that is offensive or in any way um, disrespectful, of course, Khalila never meant intentionally. Um, we are all, as I said, here to learn. Uh, I don't want you to necessarily open this now, but on the source sheet, which I do invite you to open, there is a link to the tshuva, to the rabbinic responsum, which will be the focus of my teaching with you uh, today. And I just wanna point out that in that tshuva, uh, towards the beginning, there is a very helpful glossary of terms to enable us to continue to familiarize ourselves with the appropriate vocabulary to use in these conversations. I think it's most 
um, um, I think it's most appropriate, I think it's most respectful for us to begin by defining, if we can, gender itself. So for that, I invite you please to look at the source sheet on which I've brought you. I think one of the most poignant, um, one of the most poignant attempts to capture gender offered by Joy Layden in her book, Through the Door of Life, A Jewish Journey Between Genders. I'm just gonna read this quickly together. I invite you to follow along with me. Gender exists at the place where the inner life meets the embodied life. It is neither purely personal and internal, nor is it purely biological. Each of us carries a distinct internal sense of our self as a gendered being. Each of us is also assigned an official gender by the culture in which we live at the time of our birth. Many people seem to find that taken as a whole, cultural gender expectations do not perfectly describe or define them as individuals. They may prefer some activities, styles of communication, styles of dress or ways of being that are not associated with the gender assigned to them at birth. They may hold an inner sense of gender identity that largely correlates with the assigned gender, but defy the cultural expectations of that gender. Distinct from this, there are also many people whose internal sense of gender is fundamentally at odds with the gender assigned to them at birth. This often has little to do with the characteristics or expectations outlined above. Gender is much more than how one dresses or which stereotyped behaviors one enjoys. Gender describes the internal map of the self and the framework through which the self meets the embodied world. I think that's an incredibly articulate, uh, passionate and empathic attempt to capture what is for many of us an almost ineffable sense of who we are. And one thing that I wanna add to that is the understanding that gender actually remains fairly constant throughout one's self-understanding, even though the expressions of one's gender may go through, for some people, transformation. Okay, I want, I want to emphasize that point. Based on studies um, that have been conducted in various um, uh, uh, settings of the psychosocial and psycho, um, uh, psychological sciences. Um, when we talk about transgender, it's less about someone's internal sense of themselves suddenly being something different than what it was, and more about the attempt to bring into alignment one's gender identity in its outward facing sense with one's internal map of self. Now, when we ask questions about the relationship between Jewish tradition, between the halachic Jewish legal tradition and the various identities that make up the people who call Judaism home, when we look at contemporary questions of Jewish norms and standards, one of the first places we look when we engage in study is to responsa literature, a body of literature that is comprised of the questions and answers that rabbis have 
uh, have, have engaged with, have offered over the course of centuries in an attempt to continue to apply a dynamic evolving tradition to the experience of human life, which is of itself also uh, dynamic and evolving. We ask, have these questions been, been articulated before? Are there precedents or analogies which could be instructive or valuable? In responsa literature, she'ilot utshuvot, we see the energy of the evolutionary halachic system. We see the ways in which the system itself balances a sense of rootedness in the past, a sense of responsiveness to the present, and a sense of responsibility to the future. We see how halacha and the halachic systems as normative and binding systems make claims upon us, but we also see within them the way in which those claims are shaped by historical circumstances and often by personal narrative. This dynamic, this form of study and wrestling is by many perspectives, the most loyal iteration of the sacred Talmudic tradition, which is filled with multivocal debate and discussion. Our question today, is going to be based on a rabbinic responsum penned by a colleague of mine by the name of Rabbi Leonard Scharzer. The tshuva, the, the responsum is titled Transgender Jews and Halakha. The link appears on your study sheet. And uh, Rabbi Scharzer addresses many issues, but I want to, before we get to our issue today, illuminate some of the major themes that Rabbi Scharzer um, makes uh, available to us from his study. One of the larger themes is the very challenge of the halachic system, which is often experienced as and taught as a binary system. A binary system that is, that is um, uh, defined by such, um, um, such boundaries as mutar and asur, permitted and forbidden as chayav and patur, obligated, exempt, kodesh and chol, something that is sacred, something that is uh, either uh, everyday, mundane, or as some people like to say, not yet holy, tamay and tahor, something that is something or someone who is impure or pure, right? The halachic system is in many ways a system of binaries. And yet, the realities, particularly of the world in which we are living in, is a world defined by fluidity, by hybridity, the, the, the boundaries that once segmented communities and that um, more clearly uh, uh, gave structure and definition to identity have become, even in our own lifetimes, so much more porous, such that the truths, uh, small letter T, and the assumptions with which we bring to identity and, and spiritual engagement are now um, not just inherited, but oftentimes curated. They are um, colored, and I use that as a neutral term, but colored with the increasing role of human agency that we bring to modern life today. What Rabbi Scharzer points out, which is a challenge for us, particularly in this, in this uh, topic today, is that halacha may be binary, but people, 
human beings are fluid. Now that concept is not necessarily a modern concept, but having said that the ancient sages could never have understood gender and sexuality the way we do today. And so the question of how does a halachic system, which is predicated on binaries, how can it be relevant to speak a language with and encompass people that it historically could never have imagined? How do we enable the halachic system to converse with modern life? And remember, Judaism is an embodied tradition. We don't just believe our faith, we perform it. So identity matters in terms of how and who performs it. Even in the world of egalitarian practice, there are traditions that are unique for those who identify as male and others for those who identify as, as female. And some of those cannot be made equal with a simple uh, rabbinic will or stroke of the rabbinic pen. In some of these realms and in some communities more than other, gender and sexuality marry great uh, matter greatly. Think of um, the practice of wearing a head covering. Think of the role of a mechitza, right? The separation between men and women in synagogues that, that uh, separate genders for prayer. Remember also that when it comes to equity, uh, equal does not necessarily mean the same or identical. Now, um, one of the um, micro themes that Rabbi Sharzer elevates is the challenge of addressing this issue from within Lashon HaKodesh, within our sacred tongue, because Hebrew, like many other languages, but especially, is a gendered language. It is a gendered language. There is no neutral pronoun in Hebrew. Everything that we say, particularly with respect to another human being, is gendered as either male or female. There's some very creative work being done in Israel today, actually, by poets and liturgists attempting to evolve a third gender in the Hebrew language, actually, to encompass uh, a more uh, inclusive, um, a more inclusive grammatical culture. Um, that's, a, that's another story. Now, on the one hand, it might seem like questions of ritual as it relates to people who are trans that's a very, very modern question, but is it really? So now I said before that the sages understood far less about uh, gender and sexuality than we do today, or far less about our culture um, and possibilities around gender and sexuality, but still the ancient sages knew about and did engage with the presence of people who may have had uh, in, in their language, ambiguous gender, even 2000 years ago. So for example, we have references in Talmudic literature to the androgynous, a person whose body was neither typically male nor typically female, but had anatomical features of both. Today, we might refer to someone like that as someone of ambiguous genitalia or someone who is intersex, right? And there are various uh, different situations and consequences in those, uh, in those um, examples. Uh, Talmudic law actually addressed this person and took seriously what are the halachic implications of someone who is classified in this way. And for some issues, the, the, the tradition treated them as male. For others, considered them uh, female. For others, considered them both. For others, considered them neither. So for example, in Mishnah Bikurim, 
uh, someone of ambiguous genitalia would be treated like a man in that he was permitted to take a wife, but he was not permitted to be taken as a wife by a man. In other respects, he was treated like a woman in that he didn't inherit along with other sons. He was treated like both in that somebody who injured them would be liable to pay them for their injuries. He was treated like neither. They were treated like neither in that um, if they um, if they went to the Beit HaMikdash to the temple while impure, they would not be held liable and they could not be sold as a Hebrew slave. These are just examples. Um, uh, another one, they somebody who is an androgynous would be required to observe all time-bound mitzvot because there was a safek, a doubt that they might be male, right? There's a, a, a doubtful identity there. Um, but such a person wouldn't say the blessings because there is a safek, a doubt that they might be female and would not be obligated. But androgynous is not transgender as we understand it. Chazal, the sages had no concept of personal identity that could be separated from one's birth sex. To them, anatomy and gender were interchangeable. Now, our question today regards a trans woman Someone who in the eyes of the Talmudic tradition would be considered unambiguously male, right? Because they looked at the physical features of someone and assumed that that dictated their gender. And yet, even for the people of ambiguous gender, the rabbis found a way to make room, found a way to be inclusive of non-binary people. So for some modern halachists, that becomes the precedent of the compelling um, um, responsibility to send a message of inclusion. And the sages also found room to be flexible around when such a person was treated as male, when such a person was treated as female. But the problem for us is that even though those decisions were fluid, the categories into which these people were placed in any of those decisions remained binary categories. They were either treated as a male or treated as a female. And so the binary expectations in those settings would remain. We are dealing with a different reality, with the untethering and oftentimes the fluid understanding of gender and anatomy. A quick piece of background, how was gender assigned? Rabbi Sharzer goes through uh, a brief historical review of methods that are not considered determinative in any way. They are still filled with variation and fluidity. He looks at issues of, of anatomy, of genetics, of hormones, uh, of gender identity, and offers the summary as a, it appears in your, um, in your source sheet. If you see um, his conclusion here, again, somewhat lengthy, but it's important for us to share. None of the dimensions of sex slash gender mentioned above is strictly binary, nor is there necessarily a correlation between the various dimensions. There are incongruities and mismatches. This is consistent with the rabbinic understanding that even though halachic gender categories are binary, people are not. For that reason, when gender-related halachic questions arise, 
we should approach the people affected as individuals, recognizing that there will be inconsistencies, incongruities, and contradictions. For the vast majority of such questions, gender identity will serve as the best and most appropriate criterion. It is most closely aligned with that person's sense of self, their soul essence, and most consistent with the principles of respect, honor, and dignity. In infants, it's appropriate to assign gender on the basis of anatomy, knowing that in the major cases, it will match gender identity, but recognizing that in a significant number of people, it will not. Once a person, child, adolescent, or adult has the understanding and vocabulary to assert a gender identity, it is that which should be honored. Adopting this strategy is not about acceding to whatever people want. Transgender people do not choose or want their gender identity any more than cisgender people choose or want theirs. Rather, it is a core element of a person's being and does not seem to be subject to deliberate attempts to change. Okay, now I want you to keep his conclusion in mind and we will have to consider the weightiness of what he just said with the psak, the halachic decision that he comes to with regards to our question, um, which I am getting us to. Um, there are many questions, as I said, that his tshuva addresses with regards to trans Jews and halacha, including what are the appropriate rituals for conversion to Judaism of transgender individuals? What are the appropriate rituals for, uh, for marriage? in which one or both parties might be transgender. How would a divorce take place in the marriage of a transgender person? Who should prepare the body of a trans person for burial um, uh, among the Hever Kedisha members? Um, should trans men who have not had gender confirmation surgery, right, to have their anatomies conform with their gender. Should trans men who are, have not had that surgery be obligated for some form of taharat hamishpacha, the laws of ritual purity uh, in their marriage? How do we call a non-binary person um, up for an aliyah or for an honor in Jewish life, which uh, requires calling them by their Hebrew name and conventionally we say ben or bat, their parents' name, son or daughter. That language clearly is not sufficient for many people. Our question, and here we're gonna get into the weeds, is whether it is a requirement for a trans woman who is converting to Judaism to have a brit milah, a, a ritual circumcision, or a hatafat dambrit, I'll explain that in just a moment. And what is the distinction between a trans woman who has had gender confirmation surgery or has not had gender confirmation surgery and is that distinction of any halachic significance? Let's get some definitions out of the way. A brit milah or a, a brit mikvah, right, is a ritual circumcision. Uh, when a uh, baby, uh, uh, when a baby boy is born uh, into a Jewish family on the eighth day, or when a male is converting to Judaism, the foreskin of the penis is removed as part of that ritual. A hatafat dambrit is the ritual of drawing a drop of blood from the site of the circumcision 
if the convert, for example, has already been circumcised previously in their lives. Now, what are the requirements for conversion? Every conversion candidate of any gender is obligated to go through a course of study and to be immersed in the mikvah. For men, in addition to that, circumcision, or as I said, hatafat dam grit. Um, FYI, uh, I don't, I'm sure I, this is Muvan uh, Ma'elav. It is, it is understood that among different denominations, there are different halachic requirements in the reform and reconstructing Judaism movements in line with their general approach to halacha. The halacha has um, a, a, a vote, has a voice in discussing what rituals would be appropriate, but ultimately it is left up to the halachic authority, the Mara Atra, the rabbi, the teacher of that community to decide. There are exceptions to these traditional requirements. Number one, a cis male, someone who was born anatomically male and who identifies as male who does not have a penis because it might have been uh, lost in a traumatic injury or amputated or um, you know, as a result of perhaps chemotherapy, for such a person, mikvah alone suffices. And you can see that in the text, um, the next text on your source. In addition, from the Yoradea, from the Shulchan Aruch, the medieval code of law. Also, exception is someone who is called a Nolad Mahul, someone who was born, who naturally appears circumcised, but nevertheless has a foreskin which is either shrunken or hidden, and at some point might manifest physically as if they are uncircumcised. Um, the sages say, that in such a, a case where you can't actually remove the foreskin, there should be the hatafat dambrit, the, the, the drawing of a, of, a, of a drop of blood. Now let's try to apply these basic requirements to the circumstances around a trans person converting to Judaism. Number one, trans men, okay? A trans man is someone who was previously identified as a woman who has transitioned and identifies male, a trans man who has not undergone genital surgery will obviously never have undergone a circumcision, nor will they have a foreskin at the time of their conversion. So neither circumcision nor hatafat dambrit would be required for their conversion. A trans man who did have genital surgery will usually have had some kind of phalloplasty, some kind of artificial penis attached. And those, that kind of technique does not create a foreskin or anything analogous or resembling a foreskin. Um, they would be more analogous to someone who is nolad mahul, someone who is, might be considered already circumcised, except that there would be no doubt of any kind of suppressed or hidden foreskin. Like the first group, these trans men will never have undergone circumcision, nor will they have a foreskin, so neither circumcision nor hatafat dambrit would be required in their mikvah, in their conversion rituals, mikvah alone would suffice. Okay, we're getting to our case. A trans woman, someone who has transitioned to be identified as a woman, that trans woman who has undergone genital surgery will neither have a foreskin to be removed nor a site any longer, no circumcision scar at which you might do a hatafat dambrit, 
because they will no longer have a penis and therefore circumcision or hatafat dambrit could not be required. Such a trans woman converting to Judaism would convert with mikvah immersion alone. And so we come to our question. A trans woman who has not undergone genital surgery, perhaps the most difficult scenario of all in terms of sensitivity, in terms of the potential uh, shame that this question may raise. They still have male anatomy, which may or may not be circumcised. So some rabbis have now raised the question. We, we need to deal with this question whether the mitzvah of circumcision in this case applies to every male, including trans women, or only to those who identify as men. Now, how are we going to decide this question? Let's look first at the question of circumcision for Jewish trans women. Okay, let's take out the conversion component for a moment. Right, and just to clarify the question one more time, what we have to determine is whether the mitzvah of circumcision applies to anyone who has male anatomy, irrespective of their gender identity, or whether it only applies to someone who identifies as male and who has the anatomy on which to fulfill this mitzvah. So let's back up a minute, take out the conversion component and look at the question of circumcision for Jewish trans women. Now, let's imagine for the scenario, right? As Rabbi Sharzer does, a Jewish baby is born with male anatomy, but because of unanticipated medical issues, the child the baby, the infant cannot be circumcised. When the child becomes a young adult and the medical issue is resolved, what do we do if that person now identifies as a trans woman? Would we have to circumcise that Jewish trans woman in fulfillment of the mitzvah that couldn't be fulfilled when they were an infant? So we go to one of the foundational sources about the mitzvah of circumcision in Breshit 17.10, which you have on the source sheet in front of you as well. This is my covenant between me and your descendants after you, which you must preserve. Circumcise every zachar. Now we need to know what zachar means. Maybe it means all people who are male, Zachar, of course, in the Hebrew, Zachar versus Nekeva, Zachar, male, Nekeva is female. Maybe Zachar means only people who are male by virtue of their male anatomy, right? So that would mean anybody who has male anatomy, even if they identify as female by gender, would continue to be obligated in the mitzvah of circumcision. But maybe Zachar only means people who identify as male by gender in which case only cis males, people whose gender and anatomy align as male would be chayav, would be obligated in the mitzvah because trans men who are not anatomically male, but are by gender male, don't have the anatomy to make that mitzvah possible. 
Again, Rabbi Sharzer reminds us that the sages did not have conceptions of transgender as we do today. For them, gender assignment was based on the appearance of the genital anatomy. So they understood, he argues, zachar to refer to someone with male genitalia, excluding conditions like a nolad mahul or any kind of congenital anomalies of the genitalia. It would be someone with male genitals who was obligated in the mitzvah of circumcision. Rabbi Sharzer concludes that the mitzvah of mila of circumcision is based on who has the anatomy not who claims the gender. And so it applies to any person, regardless of gender, who has a penis. Because the mitzvah in the mind of the sages would be impossible to fulfill without that anatomy. So if you have the anatomy, you are obligated. He rules, therefore, that a... Um, if you are a trans woman converting to Judaism, but you still have male anatomy, you are required to undergo circumcision. Recognizing as he does, that there are other halachic scenarios where the fact that you are by gender female, but by anatomy male, does not require you to undertake or to practice as a male, such as where you sit if you daven at a shul with a mechitza, or the language of kiddushin, of the marriage transaction between someone who identifies as male or female, irregardless of their anatomy, as well as how you are called up, let's say, for an aliyah. A, a, a trans woman who is converting to Judaism, but who has had gender confirmation surgery, or a Jewish trans man who has had gender confirmation surgery. In other words, someone who has had their penis removed and someone who has had a, uh, uh, um, a, an artificial penis attached, if they wish to do hatafat dambrit, some kind of symbolic um, uh, uh, drawing of blood, he, are, he suggests that should be okay, but it is not required. Now, just as when it comes to someone who is a trans woman who is born Jewish, we don't ask them whether they have had a brit milah before offering them an honor like an aliyah. Um, because we don't ask cis Jewish men whom we offer an aliyah to, right? Hey, have you been circumcised? Um, and so it's arguable that by extension, once a trans woman is converted, um, there is grounds to, at that point, suspend any further inquiry as to whether they have been circumcised or not. There may be those who feel differently. So final psak for Rabbi Sharzer, and then I want to take a 30,000-foot view for a moment, and then we'll open up for questions. His final psak, which you have recorded on the source sheet as well, is that all conversion candidates require immersion in a mikvah. 
neither circumcision nor hatafat damrit is required for trans men, whether or not they have undergone gender confirmation surgery, but hatafat damrit could be possible as a spiritual act. Trans women who have not undergone genital surgery do require circumcision or hatafat damrit if they've already been circumcised, which they can perform on themselves. Um, and regarding Jewish individuals, there is an obligation similarly for Brit Milah upon anyone who possesses male anatomy. Whether that is a trans woman, whether it is a non-binary person. And he says in his conclusion that this must be conveyed with care and sensitivity and does not invalidate or contradict the gender identity of that person does not invalidate or contradict the gender identity of that person. Um, with great respect to Rabbi Scharzer, um, um, that's a, an interesting sentence with which to conclude his psak that a trans woman who is of male anatomy is required to undergo a circumcision. Um, when, when I spoke to Rabbi Scharzer about this, and about the possibility of his psak uh, being experienced by someone who is trans as very much undermining their identity. Um, he, he responded to me by reiterating, because the understanding of the word zachar, himolachem ko zachar in Breshit, is understood to refer to anybody with male anatomy, the emotional issues, the very real psychosocial issues for which he's deeply empathic, are nonetheless halachically irrelevant. That is his, uh, his position. Now, Rabbi Sharjah spoke with many members of the trans community while writing this tshuva, and many of them not surprisingly expressed great discomfort with his resolution. Great shame, many of them. But uh, it, it, as, he, as he summarized for me, he was not presented with any alternative reason to eliminate the requirement of circumcision for someone who possesses the anatomy for which that mitzvah exists. Now, this tshuva remains very controversial within the trans community. There are people who feel that it lacks uh, sensitivity in the sense that it forces a tethering of anatomy and um, by their experience, gender, in a way that no longer reflects our modern understanding of the ability to separate gender and anatomy. And it renders some people's gender identity invisible. There are people who find this tshuva very constricting. But he, Rabbi Sharzer says, he tries to limit the tethering only to this mitzvah. Right, saying that really it's just this mitzvah that is required for people who have that anatomy and that for most of history that generally meant only men. But the fact that today that might mean a woman as well, i.e. a trans woman or a gender fluid woman, um, to him, he suggests maybe that's a way to expand the tradition. Maybe instead of constricting it in this moment, maybe we could understand him as actually expanding it and, and creating more welcome into the mitzvah of circumcision for people who are not necessarily by gender male. Um, 
that's that's an interesting uh, position to take as well. Um, he he asks, you know, if we include gender in these considerations, if we say, but hey, how could you require circumcision for a trans woman? She's female. He he says, if we start to include gender in the consideration around circumcision, what would be the requirement for someone who is non-binary who has male genitals? Do we leave it up to them to decide? Will rabbis, will families, will communities be comfortable with that approach? How would we respond to the parents of a new baby who say, we're not gonna do circumcision at the eighth day because it's possible that our baby will turn out to have a different gender identity than the one that we presume this baby has by virtue of their anatomy. We prefer to leave it up to them at such a time when they can confirm that they are in fact a cis male and will live their lives as such. Now, most orthodox post scheme in their attempts to be halachically embracing of trans Jews and trans converts require gender confirmation sur sur uh, surgery in order to accord this person their new status, which renders our halachic issue uh, moot, because if there's no penis or foreskin, there's no circumcision. That is an effort to require the surgery is a way to realign gender and anatomy in the way in which it can preserve the binary roles and presentation around gender. I'll share with you a very poignant, very poignant story that appeared in the news about six months ago about a trans woman, an Orthodox trans woman in the UK who was davening in shul, showed up uh, nice and early and took her place on the women's side of the mechitza only to discover that um, the men's side lacked a minion. There were nine men and there was uh, this trans woman on the women's side of the mechitza and she was known as a trans woman on the mechitza. And the rabbi in the news story, it says the rabbi very gently, very tenderly, very respectfully asked if it would be okay for them to include her in the minion knowing as he did somehow that by his halachic standards, she could still be considered male for the requirement of 10 men for the minion. A very complex uh, scenario. The, the news report uh, shared that uh, she um, agreed to be counted in the minion. Um, as I mentioned in the reform community, um, the, the halachic authorities urge circumcision if there is male anatomy, but ultimately leave it up to the Mara Atra to decide uh, based on the halachic principle, this halachic principle that it is within the discretion of the ruling authorities in that conversion moment to determine the best, most acceptable uh, uh, move forward. A couple of just concluding comments and then I'll open up. It's interesting to think about this issue against the backdrop of the recent growth of anti-circumcision movements, both within and beyond the Jewish community. There are countries which have severely restricted it, um, making Jewish life there very challenging. And I, I think we do live in a fascinating time whereby the presumed binary nature of Jewish laws being asked to stretch to be able to reflect and encompass the realities of a far more fluid 
world. Um, I happen to be of the opinion, uh, not only, um, I'm not necessarily sharing this opinion on this issue per se, but in general, I am excited by these conversations because I think our tradition is a treasure which can be mined even further than it already has for its wisdom and its compassion in how to bring forth the, the, the urgency of Kavod HaBriot, the honor of all creations in a way that allows us to retain the integrity of the system, as I said earlier, and the dignity of those whose lives are shaped by it. Um, let me stop now and invite some discussion. Anyone have a question they wanted to ask? Thank you so much for this meaningful talk, Rabbi Dina. Let me let me pose the question. Oh, please go ahead. Hi, John. Hi, Good oh, to see you again. Yes. Always, I always, I always learn a lot from you. I am thrilled to um, see you. Good to see you. My question is about language, and I know that is uh, you mentioned that, and changes are coming. I have difficulty with the following. Let's say I identify as they. And if someone refers to me uh, talking to another person, that person might say, John went to the market and then they came home. That's confusing. It's confusing to the person who doesn't understand what my gender identity was or is. And how do we deal with that? How, basically what I'm saying I think language matters. Pronouns have been around forever. I think there must be a better way or a better pronoun that has to be identified rather than they, which we all recognize as being plural for as long as English has been spoken. John, it's, a, it's an important question and I wanna underscore your point that language matters. Um, the way we speak to each other, the way we speak about each other matters. It matters not just that we are able to communicate what we wish to say, it matters that we do so in a way that reflects favorably and honorably upon the people that our words are speaking to. So I, I commend you for, for reminding us of that great value. In fact, there are many uh, attempts to evolve new pronouns to be able to capture in a grammatically singular word, uh, an identity that is neither male nor female. There are several attempts out there. I, I am, um, uh, I would defer to some of the sources that we can, uh, you, that, that appear online and in other fora that have the, the latest efforts to evolve our vocabulary. Uh, sometimes you'll see things spelled with an X as a way of being inclusive of uh, people who identify with more fluid uh, gender identities. Um, I will just say, not as, uh, as a word of discouragement, hardly, I will just say as a note of realism and, and, and empathy that as, as uncomfortable as you describe uh, you might be using uh, a word that is plural to refer to someone who is a singular being. I want to acknowledge that for many people, even these new words may raise discomfort because for many, 
they seem foreign in their own right. And so I just share that as a way to remind us that we are in the midst of a moment in history that is dynamic, that is moving and changing before our eyes. And it can be dizzying, it can be disorienting. Um, imagine how much so it is for those whose lives are directly impacted. And so it's yet another plea for patience, for respect, and for agency among those who are deserving of their place in our world and in our language. So thanks, John. Um, Shira? Hi, um, I, have an, I have two questions, hopefully that's fine. But I also wanted just to respond to John that the example that you gave is actually a perfectly common English use of the word they. When you say that someone, he, he went to the store, in, John went to the store and then they came back is an absolutely common way that we use the word they. And so I, I wanna kind of just question the fact that um, that it's not actually the use of the language, but our, our evolving comfort kind of accepting people to, um, to be able to to ask for language to be used for them specifically. There are other times when we use they that are uncommon in English, but actually that one is, is a pretty common use of the word they. So I think it's, I'm not sure it's I, worthwhile. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you because if, if, if two people are talking and the one person who is making the statement said, John is going to the store and then they came home and the other person doesn't know John, doesn't know that John identifies as they. So that person thinks that John went to the store with someone. So it seems to me that that person's question would be, well, who was John with when they came home? Respectfully, I don't think that the entire question that you, John and Shira are debating is relevant at all. I mean, and I don't just mean that it's relative to the conversion topic, but just that like, you know, the grammar, what have you, like if someone wants a certain pronoun or whatever, there are questions around, you know, whether you should use what they ask, but you know, how long ago they was commonly used in singular. Someone told me it was the 18th century or whatever. It's like, I feel like we're getting very far afield. And we're and, speaking about things for other people. And so I, I, I appreciate that. That. Was, that was my, um, yeah, I apologize. That was my impulse. I, my question, I did put a question in the chat, just so I know, and I apologize. I'm a cantor. They don't teach us as many things about how to fat and breathe as they do with rabbis. Um, it would be helpful for me to know, um, and also for two things, one, I'm curious, even though I know you are you're JTS trained, um, for communities that are not halachic, for a reconstructionist community and for a reform community or a renewal community, how does the 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 issue of halacha interject? Like as a reconstructionist, the you know, the past has a vote but not a veto. Is, is this presented to someone as saying, this is an option for you, and this is the way that 
a halachic community would approach this, but as a non-halachic community, this is not our requirement. I'm curious what you think about the element of halacha. Also the small technical piece of if a boy who is, if an infant who is a, a boy who's a child has to delay their circumcision, maybe to the age of 10, is a full circumcision expected by the community at that point? Or is a hatafat done, greet done in a, in a community that is considered like fully halachic? So my, those are my, my questions. Uh, thank you, Shira. Um, the, the, the last question is the easiest to answer. Yes, a circumcision would be performed. Um, um, generally with, you know, more, more sensitivity around uh, pain and discomfort to, um, but, but yes, ahatafat tambrit um, is done when the penis has already been circumcised. And so it's more like a symbolic, a symbolic circumcision. Um, I, I, I can't speak directly to how someone who identifies uh, with the reform or reconstructing or renewal communities uh, may present this, but what I understand from my studies and my experience with colleagues is exactly as you shared and as, um, as, as I noted earlier, that these are elements of the tradition which are presented as potentially enriching and sanctifying, um, but they are not uh, necessarily presented as, uh, as absolute requirements. Um, and so that's where the discretion of the Maradatra uh, lives. I, I see that the chat has been active. I'm sorry, I, I, I was not able to follow it while I was teaching. Um, Lori, uh, Rabbi Green, you've, you've put several questions in there. Um, I had a chance to glance at it. If I, if I misspoke in the terms, uh, if I got confused for a moment, please forgive me. I would um, not refer to a trans woman as male by gender. I, I, if I said that, what I likely meant to say is a trans woman who is male by anatomy. So forgive me if I uh, if I misspoke there. Um, and with respect to uh, Rabbi Sharzer's uh, in his tshuva, his comments on mental health and pikuach nefesh in particular, he he um, notwithstanding his conclusion um, articulates deep, deep, deep respect, empathy, concern, and consideration for the mental health and spiritual health of the people whose lives he very humbly. Uh, acknowledges he is responsible for in this chuva, especially, uh, he's actually an MD by training as well, especially in the other sections of his chuva, which talk about how uh, physicians need to be treating uh, trans patients, um, both by honoring the people who they present themselves to be, as well as making sure that the doctor is responsibly caring for the embodied person before them. And how to do that with grace and with um, and with great dignity. Um, so I don't see in his language or in his approach any sense of 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 punishment um, or or um, judgment. It is his honest attempt to understand the requirements of the uh, halachic tradition, tracing it from its uh, inception in the Torah. Uh, through the rabbinic uh, teachings that he appeals to. Um, let I, me I never thought there was any sort of intention or punishment or anything. I was just wondering if he might have noted any possible exceptions for mental health, bikuach nefesh, et cetera. Uh, exceptions to some. Someone... Sorry, I wasn't clear with my question. Oh, okay. Right? okay. You know, like say you have a, 
a trans woman who I'm, I'm totally making up an example and obviously everybody varies, but say you have a trans woman who has not undergone surgery, who desperately wants to and can't for, you know, whatever reason, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I won't take a lot of time on the details, but got it, got it. that kind of a thing. So, you know, there is, there is precedent within the Halachic tradition, within the Talmudic tradition that, um, you know, someone who has a medical issue who, who cannot undergo ritual circumcision um, is not obligated to do so and can be converted if they are converting uh, with immersion alone. So um, to answer your question, theoretically, because I certainly couldn't speak for Rabbi Sharzer, theoretically, um, uh, you know, mental anguish, psychological um, anguish, uh, the, the greater understanding that we have of the risks around those experiences and the risks to mental illness um, are such that I would imagine there are many rabbis who might, um, in a situation where otherwise they would require circumcision, where they may um, um, take a more lenient approach given the overwhelming need to preserve the health and well-being of the person in front of them. Um, you know, our, our, our tradition for that reason embraces a healthy diversity and pluralism, recognizing that um, we cannot categorize all people we cannot assume that all people in a single category of identity share exact um, life experiences or constitutions or or um, or anything else, and so that's why there is such a great degree of um, agency and responsibility to execute that agency um, on the part of halachic decisors and bateidin uh, courts of uh, rabbinic courts of law, precisely to be able to address the uniqueness of situations. And to, um, uh, when necessary, given other circumstances, rule accordingly. Wonderful. Well, we will give the last question to Rabbi Sirota. You've been um, very patiently raising your hand. And then we'll let Rabbi Shmui do the wrap up. So your question, please. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the wonderful uh, teaching, uh, Rabbi Dina. That's, uh, and thank you to Valley Bait Midrash for opening questions like this. I can confirm what you said. I'm a... a in that category of a non-halachic, uh, a rabbi from a non-halachic movement, and I would do precisely uh, what Rabbi uh, Adina said, which is to lay out the halacha as best I could, and then help the person determine whether they would uh, con uh, conform to it. And so that, that that's why that's why I'm here to, to learn more about the halacha. But the 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 issue that uh, Rabbi Green raised is uh, is is in fact the question, and it has to do also with the way the conservative movement views halacha, because you have this, you have this teshuva that comes up to the point of kavoda briot, and then and mentions it, and then discards it, and says that technically, really somebody who presents male anatomy, uh, and who chooses to join the Jewish people, must undergo circumcision or hatafat dambrit. It, 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 it's reduced to the anatomical, although you, you've very delicately said uh, that, that you could involve other psychological uh, issues uh, 
the issue you referred to is really, for example, the hemophiliac. Uh, uh, with a hemophilia in a family, you wouldn't circumcise the, the infant or the adult, or that would give you grounds not to circumcise uh, because of that fear. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to have halakha uh, apply in this situation when it, it defines in such a binary way the admission, admission to the Jewish people differently from membership in the Jewish people. A Jew who is not circumcised, this I have experienced, people, uh, women who uh, fell in love with Jews who were uncircumcised and had to deal with, uh, with the consequences of that. Are they marrying a Jewish man who is uncircumcised or are they marrying a non-Jew? Well, they're marrying a Jewish man who is uncircumcised. Uh, it doesn't take away Jewish identity of uh, someone who identifies as male for them to not be circumcised. They're just violating a very basic uh, norm in halakha. So, um, therefore, the issue of uh, of um, uh, requiring this of Jews by choice of converts is 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 a challenge in and of itself. Um, I, I think so. That's more of a comment than a question. Although I'm interested in your response. What I have dealt with in in my rabbinate, which is semi-related, but I doubt that you'd have time to respond, is the witnesses in uh, at the mikvah for a trans person, uh, uh, whether they have to, I mean, how would you determine the, in issues of modesty uh, and and respect for the uh, for the candidate, who's, uh, what the gender of the witnesses? So it, it's another semi-related question that may be beyond what you could respond to. Um, thank, you. thank you so much for all of that. Um, is it okay if I respond for, I mean, I have, I have a few minutes, so I certainly don't mind. Is that okay, Rabbi Shmuley or, or Pam? Um, yeah, if you want to make this your last response, and then we'll close up after this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Sirota. Thank you, Rabbi Lewis. So Rabbi Sirota, um, to your, to your last question, Rabbi Sharzer does address such issues as who would be the appropriate uh, ADIM uh, witnesses to the immersion in the mikvah, and he, uh, uh, briefly, he says um, that it could be a member of, of any gender and that the, uh, the convert could um, elect to wear loose-fitting clothing and to immerse in the mikvah with that uh, kind of um, uh, sort of privacy, if you will, uh, preserving their dignity if that's something that they choose. I would also add to your other point that it's not what I was trying to suggest to Rabbi Green is that it might not just be the variable around a medical issue that precludes uh, circumcision like hemophilia, but perhaps, and this is where Rabbi Sharzer didn't go, but this is where perhaps there is within the tradition the expansiveness to be able to offer um, um, uh, a, a um, uh, an alternative or an additional answer, which is that the existence of psychological distress of, of, of damaging impact to a person's mental health by requiring that they undergo um, uh, this procedure, that also can, might be used by some halachic authorities to say, the ideal would be if you have male anatomy that you participate in the mitzvah of circumcision in this sense. If participating in that mitzvah would cause you undue mental anguish, would somehow undermine your health and well-being, that could not in all good faith 
be required of you. I want to make an analogy. It's, it's, it's imperfect, right? But it, this is the reason why Jewish law, why halakha is casuistic. It is a, a, a system of law that is based on case study. We don't have these, um, y- y- you know, um, uh, new, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, these 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 dictates divorced from reality that say do x do y do z right we have law that is determined based on the uh, blending together of legal precedent and narrative such that in the law of abortion there is no halakha that says you know in every case right uh, abortion is prohibited uh, or only in case x is abortion permitted Right, there is a great deal of rabbinic agency that is understood to exist within the halachic decision making around abortion. And one key factor, one key variable is the mental health of the mother. Right, so there is the possibility, I humbly uh, suggest, that even in this discussion, in which Rabbi Sharzer's Chuva seems to land on a binary resolution, there may be room to both preserve the integrity of the halacha as he understands it and um, uh, bring in the possibility of other resolutions um, in, in the form of, of, of empathy to, um, to someone who might experience mental anguish. I would say also I have written um, a rejoinder to the Committee on Law uh, uh, of Jewish Law and Standards in the Rabbinical Assembly of the Conservative Movement for the position passed to, with great fanfare in 2006 by uh, Chuva by Rabbis Dorf, Reisner, and Nevins on the enfranchisement of LGBTQ Jews, wherein if you read the fine print, notwithstanding the hoopla in the New York Times and elsewhere, if you read the fine print, the enfranchisement halachically was offered only, only and exclusively to people who identify exclusively as homosexual or lesbian. Anybody who identifies as bisexual was halachically required, according to the tshuva, to choose a member of the opposite sex with whom to be in relationship, right? That is a significant limitation of that tshuva with respect to people who identify as bisexual. And um, I'm not even gonna talk about the other limitations of the tshuva, but, um, that to me is an unfinished chuva, given the reality of the world in which we live. How do we get a system that is understood to be limited to binaries to speak even to a, 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 uh, a world in which choice, in which choice is not just a privileged, uh, you know, a feature of con- the consumerist society in which we live, but choice can sometimes lead to better mental health, emotional well-being, and deserves a sacred embrace as well. So I've said enough. I will thank you all for learning with me. If anybody wishes to continue this conversation or any others, it's very easy to reach me, adinalewittis at gmail.com. I would love to be in further conversation. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuley. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Dina. We hope you enjoy skiing. And uh, <laughs> um, and um, it's great to learn with you all today and to think about the nuances of, of Jewish values and Torah and halakha and pluralism and justice and gender identity and, and conversion. I mean, this intersection of so many important things and so complex. And um, we it was great to learn from you. And we hope everyone has a great rest of your day. And we hope you'll join us uh, next week for a lot of great learning. We have 
on Monday, Lauren Cohen Fisher talking about early Zionist approaches to the existing Arab population. We have Rabbi Avi Strausberg talking about from flood to rainbow and many others, Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger in his peace building work between Palestinians and Israelis, Israeli Jews. So we look forward to continuing our learning with you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.